In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Francis. Saint Dominic. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Last evening, as we began our reflections, we talked about the broader context in the history of the church for devotion to the heart of Mary, paying particular attention to the very rich biblical imagery around which the church has understood this. And having done all of that, uh, we want to begin this morning by revisiting a couple aspects of that as now we move into a consideration of those practices connected with devotion to the heart of our Blessed Lady. And that is this. St. Augustine beautifully observed that Our Lady conceived the word in her heart before she conceived him in her womb. And the subsequent tradition of the church amplified that statement by Augustine in this way. And he remained in her womb only a short time, nine months. But she never left his heart. He never left her heart. And then this idea of the heart of Our Lady as the abode, the resting place, the dwelling place, the abiding place of the Lord is vitally important for a full sense of what it is to say when one says devotion to the Immaculate Heart, devotion to the heart, devotion to the sacred heart of Our Blessed Lady. In fact, the word sacred applied to the heart of Mary comes from that idea that this is the dwelling place of the Lord. A helpful biblical verse to aid some meditation or reflection on this point is from Psalm 26, verse number 8. In the Douay translation, Psalm 25, verse number 8. O Lord, I delight in your dwelling place, the place where your glory abides. And this idea of the heart of Our Lady as being the dwelling, the abode, the prepared home of the Lord is going to run through everything else that we say now um, over the course of this retreat. As I mentioned last evening, especially coming out of the experience of the events at Cova de Ira near Fatima in Portugal with Our Lady's appearance, Three very particular ways of responding to the issue of the heart of Our Lady are adoration, reparation, and consecration. And over our three remaining talks, we're going to focus on these one at a time, which doing the math means this is the adoration talk. And this is a word, like other words that we've begun looking at, that is often badly understood in the church, often badly understood among us Christians. 
we tend to, again, reduce the idea of adoration to something like a loving look at someone else. And that's just wrong. And so we want to, again, just be clear about what it is we are and are not saying. In contemporary culture, especially here in North America, we have a certain way of speaking. For example, we see a small child doing something cute, and what do we say? That's adorable. This is not what we mean when we say the Lord is adorable. Okay, we're a worthy object of adoration. And so we want to be careful about just having just cultural baggage in our language, which in a sense diminishes what it is that we're talking about or whom it is we are engaging. And so to get around this, we want to go back again to that idea of what the Lord said, where your heart is therein you will find, no, where your treasure is therein you will find your heart. And when we look at the heart of Our Lady, that heart has a directionality about it. And this is important. Both words, adoration and reparation, imply directionality. They are pointed in a particular direction. Consecration speaks of belonging. And so note the relationship. Adoration has a direction to it. Reparation has a direction to it. Consecration in a sense, is dependent on those directions and it involves a belonging to someone. Our Lady's heart, Our Lady's heart, is first directed to the heart of her son. Remember the biblical fountain of devotion? She treasured all these things in her heart. And so the heart of Our Lady, precisely as the abode, the dwelling of the Lord, is also a heart that turns inward regularly because that is where the presence of her son is found. It is a dwelling, in a sense, that honors the one who resides within it. And as such, the heart of Our Lady is a model for and a location for our own adoration. But that begs the question of just what exactly is adoration? And to explain that, now we are going to turn to 1916, near the village of Fatima in Portugal. Because prior to the shepherd children experiencing the visit of Our Lady, an angel came to visit them. A year prior. And this was to prepare them for what would happen in the following year when on May 13th, 1917, Our Lady appeared. And we want to pause with that. The notion that certain things, certain moments of grace require preparation. And so heaven prepares the children for what will come later. The children do not know this, 
And the account of the angel appearing to them, the angel of peace as he is named, is remarkable on a number of levels. Superficially, it is said that the angel came to teach them how to pray. But this is an odd statement in that the children already were praying. In fact, as Lucia counts the day the angel appeared, she talks about how they had finished their work and they had just finished praying their rosary. Now, these are little kids. How many grown-ups do you know that travel around with their rosary and pray it every day spontaneously? And so here are these children who have done their work and prayed their rosary and were just beginning to relax and play a game when heaven intrudes on them. And so it is not that the angel comes to children who have no experience of prayer. This is important for us. Because again, as Catholics coming out on retreat, we do have a history of prayer. We do have a history of relating to the Lord. It is not that we do not pray. But it is very much that we need to continue learning how to pray. And so it is that the messenger, the angel, comes to the children not to teach people who never prayed how to pray, but to teach those who are praying something further about what prayer is. What a marvelous, marvelous moment then this is. And again, one of the mistakes that is made in interpreting the visit of the angel is to move too quickly to the words of the prayer the angel taught them. And that misses what happens. Because the angel didn't come to teach them things to say. The angel came to, taught them, to teach them how to pray. And that's, there's a difference between knowing words to say and knowing how to say them. There is a difference between having something to say and saying it rightly. In fact, there's a difference between prayer and saying things in the first place. So as the angel comes and as the messenger comes, he doesn't begin by teaching them, when you pray, this is what you do. The angel comes, and imagine this, this majestic, imposing, glorious visitor from heaven to these three little children. And there's something great and overwhelming. They are not frightened, but they're stunned by his gravitas, his dignity, his otherworldliness. And the angel on coming to them is like that moment of grace where the transcendent impinges on us. And as overwhelming and majestic as the angel is, it makes what happens next all the more impressive and all the more surprising. The angel gets on his knees and touches his forehead to the ground. Now imagine that, the majestic and imposing visitor humbling himself on his knees, placing his forehead to the ground, and on seeing the angel's movement, 
the children do likewise. No words are said here. The angel doesn't say, do what I do. He arrives and he shows them something. And it's this act of bowing, on the one hand by the one who is majestic, and on the other by the simple, humble, small, weak children. But at that moment, the four of them are on their knees, heads touching the ground. And it is then that the words are given. This is remarkable. This is remarkable, this lesson. This lesson of prayer having a certain starting point. A starting point that the arrogant heart of man often gets wrong. Rather than simply going to the Lord and saying what I would like to say, the angel bows low before the Lord, touching his head to the ground, and the words rise from the knees. The words do not rise from the bold one who stands looking upward. The words rise from that one who bows low before the one who is greater. This is the fundamental movement of adoration. It is not a loving look. It is first a bending low, a bowing low before the one who is great. What a remarkable moment and a remarkable lesson this is. It is a sense of when I am conscious of the presence of God, there is a response that is required. Because he is great, I am not. He is glorious, I am not. And even the mighty angel is conscious of this. He is Lord. I am not. This is actually a statement of the value of that classic gesture we Catholics know so well, although do so infrequently in our modern age, which is to genuflect upon entering a location where the Blessed Sacrament is present. And what is a genuflection? It is a bending of the knee before the one who is greater than I. What a, what a marvelous moment this is. And it is then that the angel begins to speak and the words of this very simple prayer to prepare the children for what comes next is given. But again, it's important not to lose sight of how the words are said. Because the gesture is part of what is being taught. The words are simple. My God, I believe. I adore. I hope. And I love you. I'll just stop right there with the first half of what the angel says. My God, I believe. But note that belief is asserted from a bowed head and a bent knee. Because belief requires a certain submission, a certain trust. But belief 
by itself is not enough. Belief flows into adoration. Belief must be the fountain of adoration. In fact, without belief, adoration makes no sense. But without adoration flowing upon it, belief is leading nowhere. If I truly believe what I say about the Lord, that requires a response within me. That requires a response from my heart, from my spirit. And so I believe, I adore. And in adoring, adoration produces a certain hopefulness which is a looking forward to what is good. I believe, I adore, I look to what is good from you. And when I understand what that means, I believe in you, I acknowledge your greatness, I look for good things from you, I love you. Note the simple movement here. There is a marvelous catechesis, a very basic but powerful catechesis of the spiritual life, the basic movements of ardent prayer, just here in those statements. The angel didn't have to hand them a stack of books on the spiritual life. The angel didn't have to go through several workshops on these are the elements of a healthy prayer life. Note how marvelously simple this is. Given to those who are simple in themselves, not needlessly complicated, but very basic. Bowing low, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. What a simple and powerful lesson this is. And yet it continues. It continues in a marvelously surprising direction which we'll unpack more fully later today. I ask pardon, I apologize, I beg for mercy in a sense, on behalf of all of those who do not believe, who do not adore, who do not hope, and who do not love. And all of a sudden, the prayer that the angel teaches has a dimension that is no longer merely private. And this is important too. There is a sense that others are involved in my prayer whenever I pray. What a remarkable movement this is. I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. And the continuation is not, I ask you to change, or I am better than all of those who don't believe, don't adore. Note that there's no judgment in this at least no condemnatory judgment. It is simply a recognition now that I live in a world 
where these things don't happen. These little children in this back corner of northern Portugal have no experience of the wider world. And yet all of a sudden here through the angel, they are aware now that the world in which we live is a world in which there are those who do not believe. A world in which there are those who do not adore, who do not hope, and who do not love the Lord. And they need to do something on behalf of that world. This is absolutely remarkable. Note how exquisitely beautiful this is. Because there are several implications here. But let's first unpack that second half of the prayer for a moment. Note first, I ask pardon for those who do not believe. Well, on the one hand, one could say this is where we pray for the atheistic, the non-believing, the non-Christian world. I ask pardon. Note, though, it's not even I ask you to change them. I ask pardon for them who unknowingly have turned their back on you. But they continue. But it's not enough to ask pardon for the unbeliever because there are many believers who do not adore. There are many believers who never bow low before the Lord. And so within the believing community, there are those whose belief stops short of moving forward, who pay lip service to the greatness of God, but allow not that greatness to master and penetrate their hearts. And so I ask pardon as well for them. And then... There are many who have given themselves over to hopelessness, to a frightened way of living that knows not how to look forward. There are those who surrender to despair, and there are those who content themselves with all forms of facile escapism rather than truly hoping for good things from the Lord. We live in a world where all too many stretch out their hands to things that will numb themselves. We live in a world where all too many surrender to their guilt, their inadequacy, their fear, and see no way forward. We live in a world where all too many who, name the, who bear the name of Christian live a certain hopelessness. And the children say, and I ask pardon for them, too. Note how this prayer the angel teaches, head bowed to the ground, is naming so much of both the positive and the wounded in the reality of the world. And I ask pardon for those who do not love you. But the implication of all of this is that the, word, the Lord is worthy of being loved. That the Lord is the source of the good things for which we hope. That the Lord is worthy 
of our respect. He has not, he does no need to earn it from us. Because of who he is, he is worthy of these things from us. And so the further implication now becomes this. It may be, because the children don't know, it may be that there is no one who believes, adores, hopes, and loves you. But we will. And as long as we do, the world does. Note how wonderful this is. The issue is not, how do I change the world? The issue is not, how do I solve the problem that there is not enough belief? The issue is not, how do I address the hopelessness? The issue is, someone needs to believe. And so I will. Someone must adore the Lord. And so I will. Someone must hope. And so I will. It doesn't matter if no one else loves you. I do. Note how wonderful that is. This gift that the angel is giving the children. The children, so small, so young, so powerless, have a greatness about them because in a world that has turned its back on these things, they can do them. How absolutely beautiful this is, this moment. This moment of bowing low before the greatness of heaven. And in that bowing low, letting these marvelous sentiments begin to flow out of them. And the angel, in a sense, is awakening in them the fullness of the gift of their baptism here, the fullness of their Christianity. They did not know that. And they wouldn't have the words to explain that at that young, tender age. And yet, look how marvelous this is. Heaven giving a lesson on what prayer is. It's, and again, the important thing is this is not just a list of things to say. These are dispositions. These are movements of the heart. Anyone can parrot those words, but to say them well, to say them rightly, to make them part of who we are, that requires that first gesture of the angel. On the knees, the head touched to the ground. And it is so very easy to develop habits of prayer where the heart never bows. To develop habits of prayer where the heart is never on its knees. To develop habits of prayer where we are in a hurry to say what we want to say and ask what we want to ask, that we never actually meet the Lord who is the object of our prayer. And so this skill of entering into the presence of the Lord is the first thing the angel teaches. And Lucia says there was a, a weightiness about this, a solemnity about this. It's as if the whole world went silent as all of this was happening. 
nothing could be heard except the voice of the angel. And as they, the children rose from this, and the angel said, continue to pray this way. Note, not continue to say this prayer. Continue to pray this way. With this bowing of the person, with these dispositions rooting themselves within you. And she says, and for many days, the children prayed exactly that way. It lingered profoundly in them. At one point later, the angel had to come back and say, why did you stop praying? Because due to the fragility of our human condition and the children being children, sooner or later, the intensity of the experience passes. Sooner or later, the weightiness of the experience fades and we wander away. The intensity diminishes. This is common in the spiritual life. And so these are dispositions that one has to work at. In a moment of intensity, in a moment of grace, in a moment of retreat, there's a certain solemn ease that one has with them. But as we move into the day-to-day -day of basic, ordinary living, there is a difficulty maintaining that kind of focus. Because our hearts are all easily distracted and end up bowing to all kinds of readily made idols that present themselves to us. It happens all the time. But how marvelous that in no small measure, this becomes the preparation for them to meet the lady. And as we speak about this, as we speak about this, lurking in the background is something absolutely marvelous. And again, as we talk about devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady, we have to stress this fundamental truth. To know the heart of a person is to know the person. If I know your heart, I know you. If I don't know your heart, I may know things about you, but I don't know you. To know the heart of a person is to know that person. So let's pause a moment now and look at something we considered last night. The heart of Our Lady as being the treasury of all of those things of the Lord. And understand this. When the Lord went abroad preaching, when the Lord went abroad teaching, when the Lord suffered on his cross and when the Lord rose, the world, including his apostles, often misunderstood often overlooked, often forgot elements of what he communicated. That's the simple truth. Consider in your life all the moments of grace you no longer even remember. Consider those moments where the good things of heaven came to you and slipped through your fingers like so many grains of sand. You held on to a few, but if you're like me, you missed most of them. And now, consider Our Lady, who misses nothing. 
who gathers everything and treasures it in her heart. The world may forget, but I will remember. The world may not believe, but I do. The world may not know you, but I understand who you are. This is the heart of Our Lady. The heart that holds all things related to him within. Imagine then that original Good Friday, 2,000 years ago. And the Lord suffers on the cross. And as Our Lady stands there undergoing her martyrdom, the heart pierced, as St. Simeon said, with a sword. The world mocks him. Even his friends can't bear to look or draw near. But she sees everything. Every wound, every groaning, every movement. And in her heart, she holds it as a treasure. The world doesn't appreciate, but she does. The angel is preparing them to meet the woman of this heart. The world doesn't understand what is happening on the cross, but she does. And so she values it. She holds it. She receives it as a treasure because it is of him. And following the tradition of the church, that great moment, pre-dawn, as the Lord rises from the dead, the first to know in her heart is Our Lady. Because as he rises, how would her heart not know? And that heart also then becomes the custodian of the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the victory, held in trust for a people that will so easily lose it. And so it always has a place. It always has a home. It always has one who has it available and who honors it. Note, the angel is teaching the children on some levels the fundamental movements of Our Lady's heart. I believe. She is the woman who listened and who believed the message of an angel. I adore. She is that one whose life is a habitual bowing low before and honoring of the Lord. I hope. Because she is that one whose expectation drew down the just one from heaven. I love you. The angel doesn't come out and spell it all out. These are the movements of the heart of the mother of God. Oh, but they are. They are. In a world of unbelief, hers is the great belief. In a world that knows not how to bow low, she is the humble virgin who celebrates. He has looked upon me in my humility. In a world that knows not what to look for or what to hope for, she knows. And so she hopes. 
and she loves. How absolutely marvelous this is. This school of prayer that the angel gives the children is at the service of preparing them to meet the one whose heart moves in this very way. And how wonderful this is. In fact, as the children describe what happens, there is an interesting change in their language as they speak about the angel. And they speak about that being solemn and overwhelming, having perhaps a certain formality, a certain, dare I say, sternness about it. Um, that the experience of Our Lady, who is greater than the angel, is different. There is a joyfulness about it, a gentleness about it, a softness about it. There's the experience, in a sense, of the solemn majesty of heaven. And then an experience of something greater in a curious way, which is much more gentle, much more joyful, much more accessible, and it's connected to Our Lady. And this is not accidental either, because before the throne of grace, the human heart shrinks. Before the thunderous voice of the glory of God, we quail. We cannot endure long those things. But she held infinity cloistered within her womb. And in the presence of Our Lady, infinity, in a curious way, becomes accessible. And how absolutely wonderful this is. Because again, his heart comes to the world through hers. And we see here this marvelous catechesis of there is a way of relating to the Lord that doesn't directly engage Our Lady, but what a difference she makes when she arrives. And what was difficult and what was solemn, what was glorious, has a note of joy about it now, a note of ease about it a note of goodness about it. Adoration becomes something new. Hope becomes something new. Belief becomes something new. Love becomes something greater. And in speaking about this, it's remarkable when one hears the discussion of the children. Little Francisco, who never heard Our Lady's voice. The two girls had to tell him what was said. Who could only look. And his experience of all of this is very much then an experience of the eye. An experience of silent gazing, silent watching. But to know the words, he had to be taught them. He was also one whose eyes operated differently than the eyes of his sister and his cousin. 
little Francisco enjoyed looking toward the sun because it reminded him of the bright and burning glory of God. And he had a spirituality that was very sensitive to the greatness, the glory, the majesty of God, the beauty of God. And he could not understand. For him, the sun was this great symbol. How could anybody not like the sun? How could anybody not enjoy its warmth? How could anybody not want to stand in the sun? And so this idea that there were those who would not adore troubled him. How could anyone not honor one who is so good? How could anyone not want to, as much as it hurts, fix the eyes on that one who is so wondrous? His sister, however, had a different opinion because the sun hurt her eyes. And the sun was too bright for her to see. And the sun was often far too hot for her to feel comfortable. She liked the moon. The moon was softer. The moon was gentle. The moon brought the light of the sun to her in a way that her eyes could receive. The moon was filled and covered and clothed with the majesty of the sun, but in a way that made it available, made it accessible, made one appreciate it in a different way. It's interesting the two children have these different sensitivities. And in their own way, together they speak of what happens um, as Our Lady appears. And this ability to, in her presence, see and meet what would be otherwise overwhelming things. Things too great to understand, things too great to receive. And that in the presence of Our Lady, one's eyes might be more readily filled with the sunlight of the face of Christ. Not in a way that overwhelms, but in a way that allows us to meet him. And so we see here that it's the nearness to Our Lady, the nearness to her heart in a sense. Her heart becomes the place where we can adore without being overwhelmed. Where we can bow low with her and with her meet that one who comes to us in her and through her. And so her heart is, on the one hand, our school of adoration, our school of prayer, our school of turning to the Lord, and yet it also can be the place where we do it, too. And devotion to the heart of Our Lady has this double aspect. On the one hand, it shines before us as a model, and yet on the other hand, it enfolds us as a place where we can be with him. Just as the saints have said, Our Lady, we speak of the three hearts of Our Lady, the physical heart in her body, the spiritual, the interior heart of her personhood, and deep within that, the vital beating heart of her son, which the heart of her life beats in time to. 
And so it is that those who cannot hear the thunderous beating of the heart of the love of Christ for long and endure it can hear that gentler echo in the beating of the heart of Our Lady and learn its rhythm and learn to appreciate it and rest there. What a beautiful, beautiful reality this is. And as all of this happens, two years after Our Lady appeared in 1919, as the great flu pandemic is raging across the world, two of the millions whose lives were claimed in that pandemic were little Francisco and little Jacinta. And there's something about the end of Francisco's life that is absolutely remarkable. And again, it's, remember, he's the one who didn't hear Our Lady's voice. And yet, a certain sensitivity was his. And so it is, he's in the hospital, he's ravaged by illness, his days are running short. And his cousin Lucia went to Mass and came to visit him in the hospital. And as she arrived, and he looked at her, and... Without her saying anything, he said to her, you have the hidden Jesus inside of you. He knew she received Holy Communion. You have the hidden Jesus inside of you. On his sickbed, this little one who never heard Our Lady's voice knew when the Lord was near. This is the fruit of his responding to Our Lady, this sensitivity to the nearness of Christ and his ability to see that in his cousin's, heart, his cousin's heart, like Our Lady's in that moment, was a tabernacle, a temple, a throne where the Lord can be met. And so he said to her, just sit there. You know, he, didn't want, he didn't want her to say anything. Don't even talk to me, you just sit there, and I'll enjoy him. And say, you know, it's humorous in its own way. She came all this way to visit him, and he says, that's wonderful, thank you for bringing the guy I really want to meet. Um, and yet how instructive it is that in the two children here, we see on the one hand the sensitivity to the presence of the Lord and when one knows he's present, what one must do on the part of Francisco. And yet also on the part of his cousin, so like Our Lady, bearing in her heart the presence of the Lord in a way that one can meet him, in a way that one can know him. And how absolutely marvelous this is that Francisco, to honor the presence of the Lord, must do so in the heart of his cousin. And what a glorious echo of what the church teaches about devotion to the heart of Mary. It becomes that marvelous place where we can draw near, meet the Lord, honor him, and be welcomed by him that heart which is the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, the seat of wisdom, that heart which is the living temple of the Lord, that heart which is the ark of the covenant, 
that heart which is his abode, that heart of which the church will say, in the words of Psalm 25 or 26, depending on your translation, verse 8, I delight in your dwelling place, O Lord, the place where your glory abides. But note, note well that adoration does not begin with a loving look. It begins with a bending of the knee of the heart, the will, the mind, the spirit. One makes oneself low, and then one looks up. And the lower we bend, the higher we see. And the heart of Our Lady is that humble heart which always bows low before the Lord. And in bowing low, delights first, not in seeing, but in being seen. That's the other part of the lesson of the angel, the mystery of the first movement of Our Lady's Magnificat. Why does the heart magnify the Lord? Why does the heart swell with joy? Be not because I have seen him, but because he has seen me in my lowliness. And to truly feel the gaze of God, one must make himself low. And in the lowliness, one feels the gaze, and feeling the gaze, one looks up, and one sees, one rejoices, and one delights. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. No slave is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. These words that the Lord speaks on the occasion of the night of the Great Supper, the night before he gives his life for us on the cross, are at the service of preparing his church, preparing his disciples 
for what awaits them after he rises from the dead. And so note the insistence. You will continue the movement that is begun in and through and by me. And as the world relates to me, it will relate to my church because it is of me and because of its relationship to me. We often, from time to time, will find ourselves saying things like, Jesus makes the difference. And we often say that in a context of that positive thing you see, that's Jesus. But here Jesus is saying, oh, I'm going to make a difference, and you're going to feel it. And the fact that the world will treat you more negatively than it treats its own, that's on me. And I'm the difference. What a curious and remarkable thing this is. But it, again, addresses the issue of to whom one belongs and with whom one identifies. And what is the principle according to which one will live? And so the Lord says, let's be clear. There is that in this world which is opposed to me. There is that in this world which, in fact, hates me and does not love me. And because there is that in the world which objects to me, it will then object to everything and everyone that belongs to me. And the issue has nothing to do with whether the world likes you or not. It has everything to do with how the world relates to me. Jesus is here insisting on a fundamental identification between himself and his church. This is what we also saw on the road to Damascus when the Lord in his glory strikes down St. Paul with the words, not why do you persecute my church, but why do you persecute me? And how, you re how the world relates to me will determine how the world relates to the church. And so as he speaks this way, the Lord then unpacks one of the reasons for this. If you belonged to the world, the world would love its own. Note the implication. Christ does not belong to the world either. He has come to this world to save the world. He has come to this world because the world belongs to him but the world would rather belong to itself. The world would rather be left alone even in its woundedness and its guilt, just like the dark corners of our hearts often feel. On the one hand, we long for salvation, and on the other hand, what we really want is to be left alone and to withdraw into ourselves. 
but because the Lord does not belong to the world and will not be mastered by the world, determined by the world, conditioned to the world, the world which likes to control things objects and would rather be rid of him. And so note, and the Lord then says to his disciples, but you do not belong to the world either. And because of that, the world will not know what to do with you. The world will not have a place to put you. The world will not have a way of understanding you. The world will feel awkward around you and therefore uncomfortable, and it will want to be rid of you, either by changing you or by shoving you aside or by rejecting you or worse. And as the Lord speaks that way to his disciples, he's also putting in front of them, you are going to have to deal with the pain of not belonging, of not fitting in. And this is something the believing community has struggled with for 2,000 years. The awkward ways we make peace with the world around us the awkward ways we replace or water down the gospel in terms of our culture, in terms of our political values or identity, in terms of our business interests, because the gospel butts up against every single one of those things. There is not, a, there is not an economic system that the gospel doesn't have something against. There is not a political system that the gospel does not challenge. There is not a culture so marvelous and so perfect that the gospel doesn't call it to change in some way. And that also means then that in the heart of the believer, there is always going to be a certain awkwardness within us, where the gospel likewise touches those corners of our hearts that still belong to the world and reminds us that that's not your home. That is not where you fit. And there must be a certain disconnect between the Christian and the world because there is a certain disconnect between Christ and the world. And yet, having said that, note what the Lord says. But you can't run from the world. You can't hide from the world. You have to live in the world, just as I, who do not belong to the world, have come into the world. And what a marvelous thing. He is saying, I send you into the world not to belong to it. But just as I have called you out of the world, I who have come into the world, I have met you in the world, and I have called you out of it to myself. So I send you into the world, not to belong to the world, 
not to surrender to the world, not to be determined by the world, but to call others out of the world to me. And the world will resent you for that because you're taking away what it thinks is its own. What a remarkable set of statements here. And there's a certain beauty within them if we hear this statement of Jesus in harmony with the first reading and the psalm that we also just heard today, where we see Paul and the others, and what do we see? They're going out into the world, and in an odd way, something of the world calling to them. Paul has this vision of the Macedonian saying, come, come to my part of the world, come to us, come here and call us forth. Because even as the Lord speaks of this opposition with the world, he understands and has in mind that deep within the heart of the world, the world doesn't know what it wants and doesn't know who it needs. It is hungering without knowing for whom and for what. It is thirsting and never satisfied. And it has that odd tendency within it that the one who is living water comes to its thirst and says, I will give you to drink. And it says, but I want somebody else. And so here the Lord says, you cannot flee from the world because as much as the world seeks to shove you away, it needs you. As much as the world says it does not want you, it will not survive without you any more than it would survive without me. And so I send you because the world needs me. And so what do we hear? Let all the earth cry out with joy to the Lord. This world that the Lord says hates me. This world that the Lord says rejects me. And how does that happen? Wonderfully and marvelously in those the Lord has sent. And so from all corners of the globe, those who have been called cry out with joy to the Lord. And they do so not merely on their own behalf and out of their own faith, but they call out as the world on behalf of the world. The prayer that rises from this small location here is the earth crying out in joy to the Lord because we do so. And how marvelous it is that in this world so opposed to the gospel and yet so desperately in need of it, we see this double aspect, a reluctance, an inability to move, even a hostility, and yet mysteriously a responsiveness and a desire to move. This world which says it doesn't want the gospel, upon hearing it, 
will have some aspect of itself that turns. But it won't turn if it doesn't hear. One of the most beautiful images of the heart of Our Lady, and it's a mysterious image that uh, St. John Eudes reflects on, is on reading the psalm where the Lord comes from the midst of the world. He calls the heart of Our Lady that midst, that middle of the earth, that middle of the world from which goodness and salvation spring. What a remarkable image that is, that in this world so hostile, there's a heart that isn't. In this world, in such great need and in such darkness, in the midst of the world, there's a heart that hasn't surrendered to darkness, and a heart that is open, and a heart that is responsive. And into that midst of the world, the Lord comes. And out of that midst of the world, he emerges and he calls to his brothers and he brings salvation. Note how beautiful this is. Jesus doesn't come directly from heaven to stand in front of us. He doesn't come from outside to inside directly. He is pleased to come into this world by entering it fully. Taking flesh in the womb of Mary. Conceived in her heart, brought to birth by her. And so note, he's in the world, but not visible. Not apparent yet. And from the midst of the world... He shines forth, and he steps forth. And on the great day of his resurrection, we see this again. His body laid in the earth, in the tomb. Enclosed in death, enclosed in darkness, because of the hostility of this world that would not receive him. And yet, what do we see? From the midst of that earth, life emerges. Joy emerges. Victory emerges. And in that victory, he sends out his church, already in the world, composed of those called out of the world and sent back to the world. But not to surrender, not to submit, but to bring that life and that goodness of which the world is in such desperate need. How absolutely wonderful. And so here we are in this place. And in this place which is in the world and yet where we have one foot in heaven, we cry out on behalf of the world to the glory of God the goodness of God, for the mercy of God. And here, in feeding us with the great sacrament of his body and blood, our Lord continues his great work of feeding the ancient hunger of the world, and feeding us, and sending us who are strengthened back out into that world to bear the goodness that we receive 
to a world that on the one hand says, I need it not, I want it not, I desire it not. And yet, in the deep place of the heart, longs for it. And longs to be called out of its own darkness into this. So that in the end, that in the end, the small places like this expand to encompass this world. Because the Lord has not come to surrender to the world, but to call all of those who need salvation out of it and into his love. And as you receive him today, keep that in mind. Physically, on the one hand, you receive him into yourself. But mystically and spiritually in that moment, he is calling you once again out of this world into his self. Now, absolutely wonderful that is. Because it is not we who have chosen him, but he who has chosen us and called us out of this world. Amen.